Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I am your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. We are so glad you've joined us for another week. If you listened to last week's podcast episode, you heard me talk about our first annual African-American ministry emphasis taking place this month in conjunction with Black History Month. We are excited to shine a light on God's work among our African-American brothers and sisters in Christ. The next two weeks, we'll have guests Reverend Kokesha Bailey Robinson, a Beeson alumna, and Reverend Dr. Charlie Dates, an old friend of mine from Chicago who will be with us to preach in chapel and spend time with our students. We hope you can join us on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. in chapel as we hear them bring messages from God's Word. This week is also a special week in the life of our school. As today, February 11, begins our annual Biblical Studies Lectures. This year, our lecturer is Dr. Ray Van Nest. Dr. Van Nest is the Dean of Union University School of Theology and Missions and Professor of Biblical Studies. He'll preach in chapel this morning at 11 o'clock and deliver two lectures on the pastoral epistles of Paul, Wednesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. in Hodges Chapel here at Beeson. These lectures are free and a wonderful opportunity to go deeper in God's Word, so we hope many of you will join us. Today on the podcast, we're featuring a sermon by our colleague, Dr. Robert Smith, Jr., uh, who preached this sermon last fall during one of our chapel services here at school. Dr. Smith, of course, is one of the best-known people here at Beeson and one of the most beloved preachers in the country and even the world these days. We are glad to share this sermon as part of our special Emphasis Month, and uh, we'll ask Kristen now to tell us more about Dr. Smith and what we're going to hear from him today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, Dr. Smith is no stranger to the Beeson podcast and to many of you, and perhaps you heard him most recently on the show this fall as we talked to him about the death of his son Tony and the book he wrote as a result called Mourning with a U to Mourning Without a U uh, as part of our mini-series that we did on the podcast on grief. Dr. Smith is the Charles T. Carter Baptist Chair of Divinity and Professor of Christian Preaching at Beeson Divinity School. He is a world-renowned preacher, as Doug has already mentioned, having preached at more than 100 universities, colleges, and seminaries in the U.S., Great Britain, Middle East, Africa, Australia, you name it, he has probably been there. Mm -hmm. His research interests include the place of passion in preaching, the literary history of African-American preaching, Christological preaching, and theologies of preaching. And so what we are playing for you today is a sermon he preached in chapel last semester as part of our series on the hymns of Scripture. His text is 1 Corinthians 13, that great hymn on love. His sermon is called The Other Side of Love, which seems especially fitting to play this week, the week of Valentine's Day. Dr. Smith does in this sermon what I believe he does best. He preaches an exegetically and theologically rich sermon using images to convey truth. 
He is a visual preacher, painting images with words. And I'd like to quote from his sermon, give you a couple of quotes uh, as an example of this and for you to uh, listen to as you listen to the sermon. Uh, The first quote he gives uh, that he mentions in his sermon is, A church that does not have the spiritual fruit of love is either dying or dead, and that church needs to be admitted into God's general hospital. He also says, The gifts have an expiration date, and love transcends time. When time has fallen exhausted at the feet of eternity, love is, because God is love, and love doesn't define God, God defines love. So whether you are walking, driving, folding laundry, whatever you're doing today, uh, we pray that as you listen to this sermon, uh, it will edify and and encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Let's go now to Hodges Chapel and listen to Dr. Robert Smith on the other side of love. Our reading for today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, You can find that and follow along on page 959 in your pew Bible. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Even now, Lord Jesus, even now, Even now, for I ask this in your name, amen. I confess to you this morning that I will probably not say anything that you don't know or that you have not heard before. But I do want to remind us 
of what we have conveniently forgotten and deliberately ignored. I've been in places, churches, Bible institutes. I've been in universities of religious nature that were very passionate about spiritual gifts, but indifferent about spiritual fruit, specifically love. And Paul understands this, of course, because he's pastor of the church, Church of Corinth, the Corinthian Presbyterian Church, <laughs> Corinthian Baptist Church, Episcopalian Church, you name it. And they were very excited about ecstatic supernatural gifts. But they lacked the spiritual fruit of love. Paul opens his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 6, by saying to the Corinthians, you lack no spiritual gift. No spiritual gift. They had them. Paul lists the multiplicity and the diversity of spiritual gifts in chapter 12. It's not an exhaustive list. It's not a comprehensive list. It's a representative list. And Paul shows the necessity of them and the importance of them. And that God uses them in terms of employing a church with the needed gifts. But he says in the end of chapter 12, but I showed to you a more excellent way, not a gift, but a way of life, a lifestyle, a mindset. And that is the way of love. And spends the entire 13th chapter talking about the supremacy of love over the gifts. Because the gifts have an expiration date. And love transcends time. And when time has fallen, exhausted at the feet of eternity, love is. Because as John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and verse 16, God is love. And love doesn't define God. God defines love. But the last chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 16 as he nears the end, verse 14, Paul says that everything be done in love. Because he understood that a church that does not have spiritual gifts is a church that is anemic, impotent, and weak. But a church that does not have the spiritual fruit of love is either dying or dead. And that church needs to be admitted into God's general hospital where it can undergo a period of redemptive observation and have a blood transfusion and be put on life support because that church is either dying or dead. It's like the church at Sardis in Revelation 3 and 1 that had a reputation that it was alive. But John, by inspiration of the Spirit, said it's dead. So a church can have a large building but without love is dead. A church can have a large budget, but without love is dead. A church can have a large membership, but without love is dead. And therefore, I want to convey this truth that when love 
a fruit of the Spirit governs the use of the gifts of the Spirit. The church of Christ is edified and God is glorified. If that sounds right, if that sounds theologically responsibly and biblically accurate, participate with me in some African-American call and response. <laughs> when love, that means you repeat after me. <laughs> when love, love, a fruit of the Spirit, Guides and governs the gifts of the Spirit. The Church of Christ is edified while God is glorified. Jürgen Moltmann, a German theologian who is known for a number of prolific writings, particularly the one that I love most, The Crucified God, said that he could not stand to listen to the music of Wolfgang Mozart more than one hour because it lacked conflict. It lacked tension. But he said he'd love to listen to the music of Ludwig von Beethoven because it had the presence of conflict and the presence of tension in it. I guess you'd have to say Paul was a Beethovenian musicologist because there's conflict and there is tension in his music. Even in that hymn, 1 Corinthians 13, there's tension between the gifts of the Spirit as prolific and as notorious in a positive sense as they were well known. And there's love that is greater than all of them and will even be in existence in eternity. Paul is used to conflict and tension in his music. In fact, when he writes to the Corinthians, he writes to a church where there's conflict and where there is tension. There's conflict in Corinth over different parties. There are people who said, look, we belong to the Pauline party. We, others said, we belong to uh, the Cephas party. Others said, no, we belong uh, to the Christ party. Others said, no, we belong to the Apollos party. Tension, conflict, uh, right there in terms of uh, theological positions. And then there's tension and conflict when it comes uh, to various levels of Christianity. Uh, they are those who are carnal. They're Christians, but they're carnal. And we have to be able to accept that. Remember, this uh, is a fairly young church. Paul has founded it between 50 to 53 AD. Uh, they're from C Corinth. Uh, they're on Acro-Corinthus, the hill of Corinth. There is a temple, the temple of the goddess Aphrodite. There are a thousand female temple priestesses, if you will. And let me just tell you what it is. Temple prostitutes. They would come down from the hill when the sailors would come in from the Ionian Sea uh, in the west and uh, the Aegean Sea on, in the east. And they would sail their wares, namely they would sail their bodies uh, to these sailors. The sailors would bring with them their religions and plant 
seeds of their religion in the soil of Corinth. And there became a syncretistic kind of climate in that area. And these were new converts, and they are carnal. They're individuals who are still drinking theological infamil and theological similac. They're eating theological rice cereal. They're not strong at all. They're mixing in the world with that which is theologically astute that Paul has given to them. And Paul has to be patient because one of the things he says about love is uh, that love suffers long. And I think one of the things we do in church is, particularly when young people come, we want them to be instantly sanctified and be ready to be glorified the first day after their baptism. You've got to, first of all, catch the fish before you clean the fish. And God will take them through sanctification. If you just look at yourself, you will see that you're not there yet. But then there are also folks like Aquila and Priscilla. They are meat-eating Christian. They, they eat theological porterhouse steak and theological um, T-bone steak. They are strong, and there's conflict between the two. There's conflict in the courthouse. They are taking each other to court. There's conflict in the homes. They are divorcing each other. There's conflict even at the Lord's Supper table. Some of them are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper table and overeating and becoming gluttonous. That's conflict. And Paul knows how to play that kind of theological, musicological uh, presentations and uh, recitations musically to these people. And Paul takes and writes a letter that addresses exactly where they are. I would say to you, brothers and sisters, that Paul, as he writes to them, understands that there is a connection between theology and ethics. It has always been inextricably connected in the writing of Paul. That our ethics, whether it's unethical or ethical, have something to do with whether we've been informed or misinformed or we have strayed from theological and doctrinal teaching. There is a rootage there. The fruit may be that of social injustice, but the root has to do something with doctrine and theology that presents a kind of licentiousness and permissiveness to those things without ever, ever bringing people to repentance. I think that we need to understand, brothers and sisters, that when Paul writes, for instance, when he writes Romans, he starts building a prodigious doctrine of mountains, uh, of truth and teachings. And so he'll talk about creation and, in Romans. He'll talk about sin. He'll talk about justification and propitiation and redemption. He'll talk about sanctification. He will talk about ecclesiology, that is, the church. He'll talk about glorification. He will talk about sovereignty of God and election and predestination. But when he comes to chapter 12, though he has been dealing with ethics throughout these 11 chapters, he really gives us imperatives from verses 9 to 21. Therefore, I beseech you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your service of worship. And don't let the world squeeze you into his own mold, as J.B. Phillips will say. 
be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then he moves to verses 9 to 21 and pounds on imperative after imperative to show us that there is a relationship between theology and ethics. But the sequence, according to Herman Ritterboss, is not reversible when it comes to the indicative, the imperative. The indicative, what God has made us. The imperative, our response to what God has done. It is never the imperative before the indicative. I don't do anything in order to become. I am becoming who I already am. And that is my response to God's. Therefore, every Christian must understand that the answer to social issues is the gospel. We must address the gospel in the con uh, social issues in the context of the gospel and not shy away from them. I'm not talking about socializing the gospel. I'm talking about gospelizing the social. I'm talking about when the Bill of Rights conflict with the Bible, we take the Bible. When Capitol Hill conflicts with a hill far away, we take the hill far away. When the flag conflicts with the cross, we take the cross. When government conflicts with God, we take God. When the White House conflicts with the right house, in my father's house, there are many mansions, we take God. I'm not speaking as a Republican. I'm not speaking as a Democrat. I'm not speaking as an independent. Heaven doesn't even know those terms. When you stand before God, he doesn't want to know what your party is. I'm talking about as a Christian. And therefore, we must not shy away from them. The church has been too silent too long. I think we need to come to the place where we see theology and ethics, orthodoxy and orthopraxy interrelated. Paul was an amazing man. The worst thing you could do to a prisoner who didn't want to become a Christian was to chain him next to Paul in the prison. And Philippians chapter 1, 15 and following, Paul is talking about these chains have furthered the gospel. And so the individual that would be chained to Paul would get saved, and he'd go out and get someone else saved. Somebody else would be chained to Paul. That person gets saved. That person would go out and get someone else saved. On and on and on. Paul turned his prison into a pulpit. And what's happening today is we're turning our pulpits into prisons. So much so that we are afraid to stand up and preach the gospel. I'm not talking about being a motivational speaker. I'm not talking about being a politician. I'm talking about preaching the gospel so that the gospel speaks to every issue that we deal with. And here is Paul in this hymn showing that there is conflict and there's tension. But it's resolved with the spiritual fruit of love. It is Brian Loritz in his book, A Letter to the Birmingham Jail, which was published 50 years after Martin Luther King Jr. wrote his letter uh, from a Birmingham jail. In his essay, he says, um, he was riding a New York subway train, sitting down talking to one of his uh, friends. They were having a very fertile and fruitful conversation. Uh, but he said he noticed that uh, when the train came to a stop to let people on and let other people off, that his friend stopped talking to him and uh, closed his eyes. And as soon as the doors were closed and the people who had gotten on the train had gotten on and others had gotten off, he began to start talking again. He said that happened about three times. When people uh, got on the train and got off the train, uh, that he would stop talking until a new load came on. And Brian got irritated. He said, now why is it that every time the train stops, 
that you uh, stop talking and close your eyes. And as soon as the train stops again, you start talking again. He said, I'll tell you this. My mother taught me chivalry, and she taught me that if you are ever in a position where you are seated and there's a lady that's standing, you're supposed to give her your seat. But I was just tired today, and I didn't want to uh, give up my seat. And if I looked and saw a woman standing, then my conscience would be stricken. So I just closed my eyes and turned my head. I do think that that's exactly what we are tempted to do sometimes. We need to open our eyes. Paul did. He talked about what's going on in the church. He talked about how the world is being affected and needed to be addressed to. The gospel does not need to be socialized. The gospel needs to be gospelized. And it is the answer to whatever the yields of this world is. I would not have a gospel that I could only preach on one side of the town, my side of the town. The gospel that I preach works in white neighborhoods, works in Hispanic neighborhoods, works in Asian neighborhoods, works in rich and poor neighborhoods. The gospel is not limited. And it goes from the sanctuary to the street, from the pulpit even to the pavement. Uh, Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, we call it a hymn. It does have hymnic lines. The first three verses are rather hymnic. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, then I become a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I'm nothing. And though I give all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. That's very hymnic. And we like those lines. In fact, we like 1 Corinthians 13. When we read it, we have glimpses of wedding dresses and bouquets of flowers and tuxedos and cummerbunds and line dancing in the reception. I, I confess to you, Paul had nothing like that in mind. I know it's all right to use that, but that's not his original authorial intention. Uh, we have overused this word love so that we don't even have the capacity to uh, accurately articulate it anymore. Loves. A feeling. It's, it's some kind of erotic uh, response. We are sitting, not only in America, but everywhere in the world, we're sitting dead on sex o'clock. It's a feeling. It's a feeling. And therefore, it's some enchanted evening. You may see a stranger. You may see a stranger across the crowded room, but somehow you know, you'll know even then, that somewhere you'll see her again and again. Some enchanted evening, someone may be laughing. Someone may be laughing across the crowded room. Then fly to her side and make her your own. All through your life, you may dream all along. It's a feeling. Ben Franklin was from Boston and didn't like it and moved to Philadelphia, went down the street and bought a loaf of bread. He met a girl and then discovered electricity. It's a feeling, it's a feeling, it's a feeling. B.B. <laughs> King, the thrill is gone. The thrill is gone away. Fats Domino, I found my thrill on Blueberry Hill. The Righteous Brothers, you've lost that feeling. 
feeling, all that loving feeling, all that loving feeling, and now it's gone, 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 oh, oh, oh. And that's what we think love is. Paul said, no, that's not the kind of love I'm talking about. I'm talking about agape love. I'm talking about unconditional love. I'm talking about the love that comes out of the wellspring of the divine, the love of God. Paul lifts up this love for us to see. He uses, uh, there are three Greek words for love. Mm. The first one is agape. It's the love of God. And Paul talks about it in Romans 5 and 5. He says, hope makes not ashamed because the love of God is shed. Mm. Not sprinkled, but poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's the kind of love that you can't contrive, uh, you can't manufacture, uh, you can't uh, self-produce. It's love that God gives. And we always respond to it because he always pursues us. He always takes the initiative. We love him because he first loved us. The love of God mm, is marvelous. But then there is erotic love. Uh, sexual love, face-to-face -face love for lovers who are married, husband and wives. Mm. Do you not know that that word eros is replete in Greek literature, but not one time is the Greek word eros found in the Bible? Not once. And therefore, for those who are married, agape love has to inform, has to form, has to influence eros love. Why? Because eros love is selfish mm. and therefore wants his need met when it wants his need met it exists for itself that's why people stand up and say I need you I can't make it without you I'd rather be buried in a pine box than to know that you're with somebody else on the other side of town it's about me fulfill me meet me no, no, there is, there is love, but it must be conditioned by agape and be unselfish. But then there's phileo love. It's side-by-side -side love between friends. So much so that when agape love informs phileo love, a man really can have friendship with a woman and be chaste and be pure. Because agape love informs phileo love. And a woman can have friendship with another woman and a man with another man. And there is nothing of an alternative lifestyle that's taking place. Because agape love conditions it and keeps it focused on the love of God. And so Paul reminds us that the greatest of these is love. I must hurry, I must hurry. Learned a great lesson from geography. I, I, I just believe that uh, every word uh, in this Bible is the word of God. Now, I know there are lies in it, not that God tells it, God just reports it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I believe that the Bible uh, is God's inspired word, every word. The Bible is not, is not, it does not contain the word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. So I believe it, even the maps, I believe it. And I studied the map, I looked at Corinth, I saw that it was on an isthmus. The widest part of that isthmus 
was 25 miles. The most narrow part was four miles, and Corinth was on that narrow part of the Isthmus. There is on the east the Aegean Sea, and sailors would come down the Aegean Sea en route to Italy where they would take and uh, sell their goods. Of course, to go all the way down to the southern uh, peninsula, the Polynesus uh, was dangerous. It was another 250 miles to go there. In fact, it said that sailors who would take their trip down to the southern peninsula would ride a wheel because it was so arduous and so dangerous. But then they found a way that there was a port on the east of uh, the Aegean Sea uh, known as Lechium, or rather known as Sincrea, and on the west, known as Lechium. Mm. And they would take the ships and bring them to the port and unload them on skids, uh, make a tramway, and roll them across past Corinth, that little four-mile strip. And there'd be a larger ship on the other side, and they could take and put the wares on that ship and sail on to their destination. Well, they did that for decades and they did that for centuries. But finally in 1899, a canal was dug uh, between these two ports, between these two seas, the Aegean Sea and the Ionian Sea. And now, and we go there every other year, ships sail through uh, because it's much more economical, it's quicker, it's shorter, it's less dangerous to go through because that canal connects the Aegean Sea and the Ionian Sea. I see the Aegean Sea and the Ionian Sea as gifts of the Spirit. But there needs to be, for them to be really efficient, there needs to be a canal of love that joins them together. That's why I keep saying that when love, a fruit of the Spirit, is governed by the gifts of the Spirit, the Church of Christ is edified while God is glorified. There has to be that canal that takes and joins together these two bodies of gifts so that they can be immensely effective. Paul says here, I've been in the suburbs now. I'm coming downtown to the text. I know you were wondering about that, but I needed to spend a little time in the suburbs and I'm going to have to rush through this. I've already told you that I'm not going to say anything that you haven't heard before, but I just want to remind you of what you've conveniently, Robert Smith, forgotten and deliberately ignored. Paul says, and he takes it, so let me take and uh, show yourself here. Because anytime you take and read Paul's writings, it's really like you're reading somebody else's mail. And what has happened is that the mail has been downloaded uh, from Paul's letter for all ages to see, and we're reading it. And it's like Paul is writing to 21st century Christians. Paul says, now first of all, I need to take a selfie. I want you to see myself. Verses 1 to 3, and I don't want you to laugh. This is all I've got. It's a, it's a flip phone. This is the best I can do. Uh, but uh, Paul said, look, I want to take a selfie of myself. Verses 1 to 3, whatever you think of me, me, though I speak with the tongues of men, that is, though I speak with great eloquence, if I use the greatest rhetorical strategies of the sages of the ages and have not love, with the tongues of men and of angels, angelic language. You remember Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 and following, talks about a man he knew 14 years ago who went to the third heaven, and he stayed up there. He says, I don't know whether the man was taken in body or in spirit. Only God knows that. But he says, when he came back, God declared a moratorium on speech. 
God pushed the mute button and he was not allowed to talk about what he had seen. Paul says, if I could speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if I did not have love, then I become as a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. Those are musical instruments that were used in those pagan places of worship. And so the new converts would understand that you're talking about incoherence. You're talking about a lack of clarity. And that's what Paul is saying. If you don't have love, though you're able to do all of that, you are just absolutely making noise. Verse 2, though... I have the gift of prophecy. That's the alternative gift for Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, as the, the spirituals who love the phenomenal gifts, the ecstatic gifts. They chose glossolalia. Paul says, no, what we really need, and I speak in tongues more than any of you, but what we really need is prophecy. Forthtelling, as it speaks to us now, and foretelling, predicting what will take place in the future. If I had the gift of prophecy, mm, and didn't have love. If uh, I understood all mysteries, the mysterion, uh, according to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to God. If God let me in on his secret, even to the point that when the parousia would come, that is when Jesus would come back again, and angels don't even know that. If I had all of the heavenly secrets. But if I did not have love, if I understood all mysteries, if I had all knowledge, if I knew everything there was to know about everything, and if I had all faith so I could speak to that mountain and tell that mountain, go and jump into the sea, the mountain would commit suicide. If I had that kind of faith, but if I didn't have love, I'm Neil. I'm nothing. He said, let me take another selfie. Though I would bestow all my goods to feed the poor. If I fed every poor person in Asia, Haiti, every poor person in Africa, every poor person in India, every poor person in Asia, every poor person in the world, and if I took and gave my body to be burned and stepped into a fiery furnace and I didn't have love, it profits me nothing. Paul takes another selfie, lest I don't get to it. He comes down to verse 11. He says, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And Paul is taking us back to his childhood days. There he is in Tarsus of Cilicia. There he is having his bar mitzvah, where he becomes a son of the law, son of Abraham. There he is sitting at the feet of the greatest rabbinical teacher at that time, Gamaliel. There he is. But when he grew up, he grew up when he was encountered by the Lord on the Damascus road. Before he was given orders, now he's taking orders. Lord, what do you want me to do? Before he was stopping people from preaching, but now he starts preaching himself. Before he was a man who was the church's number one public enemy, but now he's the church's number one public defender. And Paul said, but when I became a man, and it took Paul a while, because I think we like to make our biblical heroes uh, plastic saints, monigans, manigans, that they grow, that they really get justified, and now they are ready to be glorified. Paul had to grow. I wish I had time to talk to you about uh, how he uh, responded to uh, John Mark, who departed from him and uh, Barnabas during the first missionary journey in Acts chapter 15. And the first thing Paul says when John Mark wants to go on the second one is, no, 
Uh, he's not going, he's got a yellow streak behind his back. And yet Paul is saying that love suffers long and is kind. Paul said, no. Now, if I had a choice of pastors uh, uh, initially, between Paul and Barnabas, it would be Barnabas, the son of consolation. But Paul matured so that he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 11, Timothy, come before winter, but don't come alone. I do want you to bring my books and my parchment. And it's a little chilly. Bring my cloak, but bring John Mark, my son, because he is profitable to me in ministry. He has matured. He has grown. Paul says in verse number 12, we see now, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. No glass in first century AD. Bronze, metals, that was polished so you could see your face and see yourself. But it was always a distorted view. And Paul is saying right now, that's the best we can do in time. There is an estimation. There is an approximation. You don't really see like you're going to see. You see through a glass dimly right now, but then face to face. Paul is alluding, I'm sure, uh, to the 33rd chapter of Ezekiel, or rather uh, Exodus verse number 11, where the Bible says that the Lord talked to Moses face to face. Panim a panim. He said, but then face to face. Now I know in parts, but then I'm going to be known even as I also am known. Right now, I am becoming who I am. I'm already blameless, but I'm becoming that. I'm becoming uh, that. I, I've been declared sinless and guiltless, but when I look at my behavior, certainly there's an imputation of justification, but the impartation will come in glorification because then I will become all that God has declared for me to be because I'll be glorified then. And I'll stand before him. I'll be known even as also I am, as I am known. And now abideth, and I'll let you finish the, the rest of it there, about another nine verses that I just love to talk about. But after 53 and a half years, I'm learning that you can't sail the ocean in one day. And I'm learning that a sermon can have eternal implications without it being everlasting in duration. And therefore, let me go on and finish this. And now abideth faith, hope, love, abideth. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now we've been conjecturing and guessing and uh, splitting theological hairs over why love is the greatest. In fact, the Greek says greater, the greater. Hope and faith both have expiration dates. And when time has ended and eternity, future starts. We will no longer need faith. The songwriter says it well. Oh, Lord, haste today when the faith shall be sight. We will not walk by faith. We will walk by sight. And we will no longer need hope because why do you need the hope when you see the realization? So faith really is that courage to look at today as a living reality so that the not yet becomes already. And hope is that courage to see beyond circumstances 
and to grasp what God is doing in the world today. Faith and hope have expiration dates. Faith and hope have to have some kind of object. You can't have faith in faith. You can't have hope in hope. There must be an object. Jesus says, if you're going to really have faith, in Mark 11:22, you must have faith in God. He says, have faith in God. And hope must have an object. For the psalmist, the sons of Korah in that masculine, in Psalm 42, verse 5, says, hope thou in God. And I'm here to tell you that my hope has an object. And my faith has an object. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. But love does not even need an object, for it is an object. For God loves himself in the social trinity. And we sang a song by George Matheson. You see, he was born in 1842 and died in 1906. At 20 years of age, he was uh, engaged to be married. But uh, he began to lose his sight. And he told his fiance that I'm losing my sight. Well, after pondering, she decided that she did not want to live with someone that was going to be blind for the rest of their lives. She broke up the engagement and it broke his heart. Well, his sister, by providential arrangement, decided to be his caregiver. And for 20 long years, she took care of her brother. But uh, 20 years later, she decided to get married. Oh, yeah. He was disappointed, but he understood. The night before the wedding, he picked up his pen of inspiration and dipped it in the ink of illumination and wrote these words. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee and give thee back the life I owe that in thine oceans depths did flow may richer full of thee oh yeah he was forsaken and but God embraced me because he was forsaken I'm going to leave you alone now but uh, I hear Paul Paul saying in Romans 8.32, in Romans 8.32, God who spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all, how graciously, how 
freely will he not give us all things. I know that God would not give up George Matheson and he would not give up Robert Smith because he had to give up his son. And Jesus came from God by being sent in the incarnation. Jesus uh was forsaken by God at the crucifixion, but Jesus was raised at the resurrection. And one of these days when it's all over, when hope and faith have given up their service, turned in their license, turned in their service report, love will be right there. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply staying within, sinking the rise no more. But the master of the sea, he heard my despairing cry from the waters, lifted me, now safe am I. Love! You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.